COVID pandemic has been really hard on cities. Up until now, about 95% of all the reported infections and virtually all the fatalities have occurred in cities. Welcome to World vs. Virus, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that aims to make sense of the COVID-19 outbreak. This week, has coronavirus killed the city? Survey after survey suggests that although COVID-19 has been an overwhelmingly negative experience, most people don't want to go back to the old normal. The world of commuting, the world of the office, the world of grotesque inequalities. For decades, the world has experienced uninterrupted movement of people towards cities. But will the dual health and economic hits of COVID-19 reverse that? I do not predict the death of cities, but I do think the texture of cities will be permanently changed. I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum. And with a look at the future of cities in a world forever changed by this pandemic, this is World versus Virus. New York City is dead forever, screamed a headline in none other than the New York Post in August, above an opinion piece setting out why COVID-19 had caused an exodus of people who could work and live elsewhere and would not choose to return to an overpriced, crowded metropolis where the economy, as the author put it, was in a death spiral, and New York's other attractions were just not that attractive anymore thanks to the pandemic. The article by James Altucker, an entrepreneur who used to run a comedy club in Manhattan, caused comedians and professional New Yorker Jerry Seinfeld to fire back. Seinfeld said remote working could never replace the city. He said, Energy, attitude and personality cannot be remoted through even the best fibre optic lines. That's the whole reason many of us moved to New York in the first place. And he widened out his argument beyond New York. And I quote, You ever wonder why Silicon Valley even exists? Why do these people live and work in that location? They all have this insane technology. Why don't they just spread out wherever they want to be and connect with their devices? Because it doesn't work. That's why real, live, inspiring human energy exists when we coagulate together in crazy places like New York City. So who's right? Is the city dead? My colleague Ross Cheney spoke to two leading experts on cities. Firstly, David Orter. Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and co-director of MIT's Task Force on the Work of the Future. Ross asked Professor Orta what impact COVID has had on cities. Well, so I think it's interesting to ask not only what effects it has it has, but what effects will it have? And this is a topic I worked on with my colleague, uh, Liz Reynolds, who's one of the co-leaders of the MIT Work of the Future Task Force, along with myself. And you know, one of the, the biggest changes that, that we see, not only at present, but likely going forward, is, is, is the rise of, of telepresence, uh, by which we mean you know, people, you might call it telecommuting, whatever. We prefer the term telepresence because it indicates that you are present without being there physically. And this is, we think, will change the texture of urban life in a couple of ways. One is that uh, people just be going to the office less over the long term, which means uh, you know less demand for you. you won't be going out for coffee on the way to work. You won't be stopping for gas. You won't be going out to uh, dinner downtown. You won't need as much uh, building services, cleaning, and security. Uh, two, our our strong hunch is that it's going to dramatically reduce uh, business travel. That a lot more business travel will be done telepresently. And again, where do business travelers go? A lot of them go to these premier destinations, right? They're going to London, they're going to New York, right? They're going uh, to San Francisco, they're going to uh, San Jose. 
And, um, and those, that business travel drives a lot of economic activity among service workers because it's not just the airports, but it's the Ubers and the taxis and the limos. It's the expensive hotels that, you know, are occupied in the middle of the week, not with tourists, right, with business travelers. It's the people going out to dinner on the expense account of the firm and all the different ways that people basically entertain and, you know, substitute for home when they're away from home. And so the combination of those things we suspect will dampen demand for exactly the set of service activities that we've been talking about, you know, the food service and the cleaning security, not the home health care, but all the other pieces. Um, and I think that's going to be mean hardship. Uh, I think it's going to mean that as we bounce back out of this uh, pandemic recession, we will not see those jobs being repopulated as rapidly. Uh, and as a consequence that, you know, uh, that means there'll be less demand and less, you know, and less wage pressure. I mean, one of the good things about the very tight U.S. labor market of the last several years is that we did see wages rising at the bottom. We did see ra- wages rising among people without high school degrees. We saw people with uh, criminal histories getting much more readily employed. We saw people with uh, work-limiting disabilities uh, uh, returning to work at numbers we haven't seen in decades. And those are all really great things that come from a tight labor market. And now that we face a slack labor market, but I think especially a slack labor market in these set of services that will uh, reduce that virtuous wage pressure uh, and make it uh, more challenging. So what does all that, this massive increase in so-called telepresence and the disappearance of many low-paid jobs mean for the future of cities? David O'Tor. Now, how this will change urban life more generally, you know, Many people have predicted the death of cities over many centuries and the so-called, you know, the death of distance and all that. So I, I don't want to go that far, uh, but I think it will, it, it will slow down this process of agglomeration, this process of everyone packing into the same place. How well it does that depends on how close a substitute all this telepresence is for in-person presence. And we don't know the answer to that yet. Historically, it's not been a good substitute. That's why people seem to, you know, even as telephones and, you know, uh, video improve, people just pack more and more into cities. But now we've made, uh, it's not just that the technology has improved, it's that we've made a kind of, we've solved a collection a collective action problem of us all moving online simultaneously. Like a few years ago, imagine that, you know, we'd all been invited to some meeting in Hong Kong and, you know, Professor Otter said, oh, guys, I'm not going to fly to Hong Kong. I'll just be on the Zoom video. And everyone else in the conference room and expected to stare at, you know, Otter on the screen. They'd be like, you know, get the hell out of the room. You know, that's, that's you know, we don't want that. That's, that's not okay. But now that everybody is doing that simultaneously, the norm has shifted and it's much more feasible. There's no, the cost to me of being the one guy on Zoom is, is you know, I no longer have to pay that. Everybody's out there. So it then makes it much more feasible for this to work well than when one or two people tried to implement it, you know, kind of unilaterally. So I think we don't know how well it's going to work. And it's also the case that we are at the very early stages. You know, Zoom is not the upper bound (laughs) on what we will be doing, right? We will be using virtual reality and augmented reality. Uh, We will find better ways of socializing. Uh, We will find many more ways of enhancing the experience. And already there are ways that online interactions are better than in-person interactions, not just because you don't have to, you know, the convenience, but also you can share, you can, you know, put a lot of information on the screen and uh, augment things. Everybody in the room is seeing the same thing and there's no one in the back of the room. There are good things as well as bad things. And I think that the good things will get better because we'll invest in making them better. So I don't know the answer. I do not predict the death, death of cities, but I do think the texture of cities will be permanently changed. 
You're listening to World vs. Virus, where we're asking, will COVID-19 kill cities? Did you know that the forum produces several other podcasts? In fact, we're launching a new one next week, looking at how we might solve some of the world's biggest environmental problems. Please stay to the end of this episode to hear more about that. But now here's a trailer for the podcast where my colleague Linda Lucina interviews company leaders to find out what makes them tick. The World Economic Forum has a brand new podcast, Meet the Leader, where the world's top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest problems. This week, we talk to Netta Corin, founder of the Hexa Foundation, a nonprofit organization using blockchain to solve big humanitarian challenges. She'll explain how blockchain can tackle things like waste and foreign aid, as well as prevent one of the internet's most pernicious problems, exploitative images of children. We're actually using fingerprints of these photos, kind of like a code or a hash. And all the cloud platform has to do is scan every new photo against the global database of illegal photos. For the majority of internet users, we can today remove the images for them and help cloud platforms remove all the images um, from the user base. She'll also explain how she uses patience in her work and the importance of finding doers to move big projects ahead. All that and more on this week's Meet the Leader, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And welcome back to World vs. Virus, where we're asking, will COVID-19 kill cities? Political economist Robert Mugger is an expert on cities. He's the co-founder of the Igarapé Institute, a think tank that explores how new technologies can help solve global challenges. And he's also the co-author of a new book called Terra Incognita, 100 Maps to Survive the Next 100 Years. He told Ross Cheney that the pandemic had shown us what was wrong with our cities. Cities are the crucible of our civilizations. They've been around for thousands of years and have gone through enormous crises to come back often better than before. They're where innovation occurs, they're where creativity is flourishing, they're where young people gather to share ideas. Uh, They've always been where the future happens first. But let's be really clear. I mean, the COVID pandemic has been really hard on cities. Uh, I mean, up until now, about 95% of all the reported infections and virtually all the fatalities have occurred in cities. And, and so we think of this, and I think it's important to think of this crisis as a uniquely and profoundly urban crisis. Um, the mayors I talk to around the world talk about how COVID is basically a stress test for every single system in the city. And they're forcing cities and city leaders to think about everything, you know, from their basic services, uh, like health and education, uh, to tax relief and public transport and everything in between. So the other big challenge with COVID is that it's exacerbating existing challenges that cities already have, you know, things like unemployment, uh, poverty, inequality. And what we're seeing in cities, rich you know, and poor, is years and years of progress being set back. And it's the poorest and the most vulnerable of city dwellers that are the most susceptible to COVID-19. And we've heard these stories over and over again, whether it's in New York or whether it's in Geneva or whether it's in Nairobi or whether it's in Shanghai. It's the poor, it's minorities, it's the elderly, it's migrants who are often on the front line and bearing the disproportionate costs of this crisis. And what we're finding is that economic geography, the the ways in which cities are stratified across income and class is probably as important, maybe even more important than the physical geography, which is to say where you actually live when it comes to determining health outcomes. 
mean, what I think when I talk about COVID, I, I, I liken it to a kind of x-ray machine that's revealed the deep inequalities that have always existed in our societies. But what it's done is it's brought them out into sharp relief. And I think what we're seeing in India right now is a perfect example of that, where we're seeing an explosion of cases, especially amongst the poorest of the population, many of whom were forced uh, into living into conditions that ensured way the spread and contagion of this disease, making it very difficult for them to escape it. Because when you have people packed into tight quarters, when people are forced to rely on public transport or informal transport, where you're cheek by jowl together, uh, where you're often required to, to work in areas where you don't have access to sanitation, you know, where you don't have access to, frankly, even potable water that allows you to wash one's hands, uh, where schools are dense and there's poor ventilation, where, where large numbers of people are, are, are packed into single you know, roomed homes, these are precisely the conditions in which contagion spreads. It's not necessarily density that is the problem. It's the overcrowded nature of it and the structural inequality that's built into it that seems to be the big issue. So what do we got to do? I mean, I think if we're going to get serious about dealing with this challenge that the poor, vulnerable and minority groups tend to be overly exposed or disproportionately exposed to COVID, we got to get serious about our health systems. Um, this means really designing sentinel surveillance systems that capture the warning signs, especially in our low income settings. You know, a lot of the pandemics that we've seen around the world don't happen necessarily in the center of cities. They happen at the edges of cities, often where supply chains are connected, where big manufacturing installations are based, where migrant housing is concentrated. So we have to get precisely the areas that tend to be neglected by state services. And so we have to get a lot better at, and, and a lot smarter about how we're monitoring areas of high risk, um, whether it's migrant shelters, religious gathering places, old age homes, but also lower income areas. Um, and this is, I think, where new technologies come in. I mean, using big data, using AI, using different kinds of mapping and remote sensing technologies, we can get much smarter about doing this. Um, so COVID-19, I think ultimately, like many big disasters, is revealing some pretty hard, uncomfortable truths about our, our, our societies and our cities in particular. You know, this idea that vulnerability is not conditional physical geography, I think is one, but rather our social and economic geography is a really poignant point. Um, but the idea that areas that are informal and are serviced, that are overcrowded, that are overly polluted or exposed to pollution tend to suffer worse. Um, and we've seen this play out even in some of the wealthiest cities in the world where wealthy neighborhoods like Upper Manhattan and poor neighborhoods, let's say outside of West Queens, see night and day differences in terms of COVID infection rates as well as uh, mortality rates associated with the disease. So if we're going to avoid future outbreaks, especially outbreaks that are disproportionately affecting poor and marginal populations, we need a radical intolerance of inequality and poverty. Looking at the glass half full, we asked Robert Mugger if there was an upside to the pandemic for our cities. First thing I'd say is COVID-19 has been an overwhelmingly negative experience in the short term, right? It's had massive health consequences, traumatic implications for, for employment and our economies, devastating implications um, for, for you know, people's sense of their own personal well-being. Um, as well as contributing to surging political risks and, and um, you know, accelerating trends around national, na nationalism and protectionism. Um, but it's also, I think, revealed some of what's best about our cities. You know, the extraordinarily imaginative responses of our mayors and our, and our city leaders and our city councils in, in many cases. Uh, the wonderful expressions of solidarity and altruism. Um, the ingenuity of our entrepreneurs. And what's interesting is that survey after survey suggests that although COVID-19 has been an overwhelmingly negative experience, most people don't want to go back to the old normal, um, the world of commuting, the world of the office, the world of grotesque inequalities. Cities are not going to 
essentially die as a result of COVID-19. I mean, the future is uncertain, it's bleak, it's volatile. Uh, there are a lot of question marks, but cities have virtually always bounced back from pandemics. Um, and what's really interesting about cities is that infectious disease outbreaks over the last couple thousand years haven't I mean, they caused enormous suffering and, and great pain uh, to residents, but they've also led to really profound improvements in cities. You know, And if you think about it, like think of the bubonic plague in the 13th century, uh, which led to, among other things, prohibitions on like really cramped and squalid urban spaces. Um, malaria and cholera outbreaks in the 19th century triggered uh, changes in ventilation and sewage systems. And there's a famous example in London, of course, uh, of the cholera outbreak that led to the founding of modern epidemiology and also vaccinations. And in the 20th century, we've had all sorts of pandemics like typhoid and polio and flu, and it's led to rethinking of everything from zoning rules to waste management to how we design our buildings uh, to the birth of the modern, you know, the modernist movement, which, you know, has profoundly influenced the way we think about architecture and planning. So this pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic, isn't an exception to the rule. Uh, it's going to cause, and it is causing, e enormous challenges, um, both in the health front, but also in the economy and security and everything in between. But it's also creating a unique opportunity. But here's where I am a bit of an optimist, because what we're seeing right now is owing precisely to the economic pressures that this pandemic is generating, the enormous impacts on labor, the incredible costs in terms of liabilities and revenue shortfalls, uh, the big costs in terms of lost jobs and all the rest. We're going to have to do more with less. Um, we're going to have to get really smart in this moment of austerity that's coming. Uh, and what we're seeing already is green solutions emerging, uh, uh, especially precisely because it's a way of also reducing costs. We're also seeing how the pandemic has reinforced this sense of the importance for many people of having walkable cities, uh, of parks in their cities, of micromobility and have, you know, pedestrianization and less vehicles. So this idea of the 15 minute city, right, which has been an idea that's been circulating for a long time, the idea that any service can be walkable within a 15 minute radius uh, of complete neighborhoods, of regenerative solutions. This isn't a fantasy anymore. Uh, what COVID has done in some ways is it's, it's exposed our dangerous over-reliance on long and just-in-case supply chains. Um, and it's moved us towards thinking, I think, more locally uh, while also understanding the global scenario and towards more just-in-case and short supply chains. It's also reinforced the importance for many of us of the you know, solidarity of social capital uh, of networks of reciprocity, of the importance of being in it together. I mean, even at this moment of international fracture, where our global institutions aren't really coming together, where our nation states are paralyzed, what we're seeing at the neighborhood scale are people coming together in, in many ways where they can. Um, and it's, it's really showing off the ingenuity of creative people um, who are working together to solve problems. I mean, one of the most exciting things about cities because of these crucibles of creativity and innovation is that they're also bubbling up really fascinating ways of dealing with this crisis, whether it's using apps for contact tracing or finding ways to connect people for, for access to food or addressing and shining a light on minority populations who are really suffering. So there is a, a leveling that's happening at the city scale uh, due to COVID-19 that could result in cities emerging even stronger from this, but it all comes down to the kinds of decisions that cities make in the next couple of, of months and years ahead. We started this podcast talking about New York is the Big Apple dead forever, as that New York Post headline would have us believe? 
Robert Mugger. COVID-19 is probably the most significant threat to New York since the fiscal collapse of the mid-1970s, and the warning lights are flashing red, right, in New York. I mean, unemployment right now is at 16%, which is double the national average. Uh, revenue collection um, has plummeted by about $2 billion. bucks. A third of the city's hotel rooms are, are unoccupied. Apartment vacancies are, you know, sky high. And, you know, let's not forget, the city was the center of the U.S. outbreak for a couple of months. I mean, more than 24,000 New Yorkers died um, from COVID-19. Compare that to Canada, which had about 9,200 uh, over the same period. So it's going to take years uh, for New York to recover. Let's be really clear, um, you know, because the city depends on sales, on personal income and property tax um, to survive. And we've already seen that the city's had to cut billions of dollars of, of spending, um, and we've seen big tensions between the state and the city, and of course, no surprise, between the federal government and, and the city. So there is a sense of panic uh, that's set in as New Yorkers are forced to change, in a way, where and how they're living. Um, and we're seeing that manifest as well in just the way they're able to move around the city, with public transport being cut, and uh, the ways in which tourism revenue is being cut, and the ways in which retailers are being shuttered. So there is a very um, disturbing uh, scenario playing out in New York, which I think suggests that New York, you know, <laughs> this may be the end. But I, I think it's far too early to predict New York's decline, um, its permanent decline. You know, one thing you can say about New York, it has astonishing levels of resilience that it's displayed uh, countless times over previous centuries. You know, pandemics have come and gone um, in New York and other cities over the, over the years. What I think is going to happen in New York um, in the short term, of course, is an enormous amount of challenges. But in the medium to longer term, we could see a reordering in a, in a way of the city at some level, especially when it comes to affordable housing, um, which, you know, New York, like so many other big global cities, was, be, was becoming inaccessible uh, to all but the wealthiest. Um, and I think it's also going to force a reckoning or rethinking uh, of the city's physical layout. And that was already happening, but this will be sped up in terms of the more attention to parks, um, greater emphasis on micro-mobility solutions like bicycles and scooters and um, people walking and the rest. Um, and this real thing that New York's always had, which is a sense of focusing on the neighborhood, uh, the borough, you know, enhancing and improving the quality of life and livability at that neighborhood scale. COVID-19 has tested everybody uh, simultaneously. It's like the world's biggest natural experiment, right? But it's, you know, it's an infectious disease and it's not the only infectious disease we have to worry about. COVID-19 is just one pandemic among many that are on the way, but even more threatening than COVID-19 are the big megatrends on the horizon, especially climate change and biodiversity loss and uh, digitization automation. So, you know, I think we better learn from the experience of New York uh, and other big cities, um, and we better start fitting them and preparing them for the much more catastrophic challenges on our horizon than this pandemic. We were all tested simultaneously and we didn't do so well. Um, we won't get that kind of second or third chance when we start seeing the impacts of climate change come with their full force as they're starting to do. So this is the wake-up call that I hope everyone's uh, taking into consideration. Robert Mugger, political economist. And before him, you heard David Otto of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Task Force on the Work of the Future. They were both interviewed by Ross Cheney. Before we go, just time for a sneak preview of a new podcast series that launches soon. It's about the environment and it's called House on Fire. 
I am here to say our house is on fire. We have now to be really aware of the dangers of what we're doing. We're reaching tipping points all around the world. We've heard the warnings. Now, what are we going to do about it? This is Thermopylae. This is Agincourt. This is the Battle of the Bulge. We have to rise to this occasion. Welcome to House on Fire, a new podcast from the World Economic Forum that dives deep into the biggest environmental stories on the planet. Each week, we aim to bring you closer to the changemakers working to save the world. The entrepreneurs disrupting what we eat. We have a product that meat eaters love, you know, and it's a multi-trillion dollar meat eater market. The scientists going the extra mile to save threatened species. We have to travel with an elephant to ward off tigers. The innovators shaking things up. Big companies just need to ask themselves, what's the bigger risk to fundamentally rethink their business model or to have it made irrelevant by people like us? And the campaigners who never give up. That's what my frustration is. I just, I don't see why we're not moving faster. We'll share big ideas. One trillion trees will sequester more than 200 gigatons of carbon. We have to get on this right now. Who's working on this? Visionary leadership. It's easy to say that you stand for something, but the public knows the difference between those who are serious and those who are not. And wisdom from across the world on the great challenge of our times. Human beings need to understand that we are part of the nature. We only one species of the nature. Join me. Kiara Kelly and me, James Bray, for the first episode of House on Fire, as we focus on the fight for biodiversity on our planet. The natural world is the source of all wonder. We are bound up together. House on Fire, coming November 17th. Looking forward to that. Please subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts and see details of all our shows at wef.ch slash podcasts. Remember, you can find all our coverage of the world's most important issues at weforum.org and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. Thanks to Ross Cheney and Gareth Nolan for help making this week's podcast. Thanks to you for listening to World vs. Virus. Until next time, from me, Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, goodbye. <laughs>